Uh, well, many of you know that one of my favorite guests, and I say this uh, in complete seriousness, although he might be rolling his eyes as he's hearing this, <laughs> one of my favorite guests here at JMNAM is someone who's not always available to us. It's very hard to get a hold of him. Uh, but thank God this morning we have him with us live via telephone. Uh, Yisrael Besser is with us live via telephone. There are two brand new books from ArtScroll that I want to bring to your attention and remind you uh, that when you go to ArtScroll.com, order these or any books with promo code radio, and you have a wonderful discount and free shipping. You know the rule when you go to ArtScroll.com. Always use promo code radio. Uh, a little later on in this conversation, we'll talk about Arise and Sing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yisrael Bester's book on the power of the first prayers of the day through commentary, stories, and inspiration. And as somebody who, uh, well, you know what, I'll save that for later on. Uh, but first, I want to speak about the life and legacy of Reb Moshe Reichman. The book is entitled Building for Eternity. Yisrael Bester is the author. He's with us live via telephone. A pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Oh, good morning, Nachem. It's always so nice to be here. Appreciate that. We're very a mix much. of uh, intelligent conversation, which is also fun. It's usually one or the other, <laughs> and with you, it's always both. <laughs> thank you. I I think that's a compliment, and I thank you for that. <laughs> Sounds like it. This is mm -hmm. th this this must have been a very interesting project for you, uh, meaning the the uh, the Reichman book, Ramosha Reichman, Building for Eternity, because this th there is there is so much a part of this book that is literally a history lesson. I mean, how could you have researched and then written this book and not say to yourself, my gosh, what hashkacha pratis, what divine providence does it take for a family to survive the war, to survive all the tragedies that were going on in Europe at the time, and then eventually to become this thriving family in many ways in the Jewish world. That thought must have come across your mind a million times, like just the mazel and hashkacha mm. that this family had like so many others had. Right. It was clearly a destiny. Everybody is a destiny. And like you're saying, everything is hashkacha. The ones who didn't survive the war is also hashkacha right. practice, right. obviously, unfortunately. But there's something, there is a family, there is a destiny to the family, and they knew it. They were marked by destiny, like you said, to survive the war intact those years, to be able to leave Hungary and cross the continent. Um, and then to succeed that quickly after arriving in North America was also very, very unusual. They were way ahead of it. The, the, most, most of the established firm families that would rebuild the Torah world after World War II took them about 20 years to find their footing and build the businesses, and, and the Reichmans were way ahead. You know, by, by 1960, they were already wealthy people. Right. And doing, they, they had this sense of mission. To, and I, I interviewed, you know, I, I worked on the book for six years, so at the beginning wow. of the project, there were still people alive who aren't, who aren't here now. And they would tell me about those early years when there was no, you know, today it's not a big deal to find a sponsor for this or that. You can make a other subhanim in your shul and someone will give you $150 for no problem. Right. It wasn't like that. They said people, they were scared they wouldn't have what to eat. They were all survivors, or many of them were survivors. And even those who had grown up in America remember the Great Depression. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't have this idea of just writing out checks. And you put your money in the bank if you had anything extra. And the Reichmans came with this mindset of doing and doing and building early on. Yeah. The whole city. I'm glad you said that. It's giving me an additional perspective now as I think about it, because it did strike me that by the early 60s, as you just said, they are you know, doing so well financially and doing so well with Chesed and Staka. And, and what struck me uh, in terms of your comment that you know, they, they got up and dusted, dusted themselves off and got you know, started right away, literally, as the war is ending, literally as the war is ending, and then, of course, the immediate aftermath as people were in displaced persons camps, etc., 
they're jumping right into action. It's like it's like they're able to forget the horror that that they and their friends and relatives had had experienced one way or the other, either horror just from hearing what happened or horror by being in these episodes, and they were able to set that aside and literally get up the next morning and jump right in to, to mitzvos and chesed, and that's pretty remarkable. So that that's a lot of credit to the parents who use those years in, in Tangier, where most people would just be grateful to be safe, to be right. away from the guns of war. Right. She she launched this, this not only advocacy, but this life-saving operation. You know, people thought she was crazy. I, I wrote that for sending packages into the camps. They said, right. it's not going to reach anybody. You're, all you're doing is feeding the Nazis. You're giving them chocolate and cigarettes and sardines and scarves. She didn't stop, and she kept pushing, and, and she subsequently was proven right. I wouldn't say all the packages got to people, but many of them did get to people and gave them life-saving food and, uh, you know, opportunities to bribe guards, which was also the difference between life and death. That, that was the feedback she got after the war. In addition to which, through the Red Cross, she kept mail going and, and you know, uh, lines of communication open between inmates and their families. This didn't end, and there was a family. She, she made it a family enterprise. They sat around that table, as I wrote in Tangier, and they, they just put together parcels all day, yep. every day, shipping it. There's a story in the book, which it's not about Moshe Reichman, it's about his older brother, Eli Reichman. He subsequently moved to Israel, where he built the, the Bell Center, you know, the Pamon, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mall. Mm-hmm. He was doing business, and he was the oldest son, and he was ready to start to do business. He was 16, 17 years old in Tangier, and he had a shipment of almonds, I think. I love this story. I love this story. And his mother <laughs> confiscated them. <laughs> For what she was doing, and he said, like he had that, and she explicitly like looked him in the eye and said, "Buddy, we're not here to do business. You could do business if it, but if there's a chance to help a Jew, that comes first. Business is always secondary." So she, you know, she, what's it called? When the government takes over your shipment, right? Uh, reapportioned that, right. that shipment of almonds for herself to help Jews, and she paid him his costs and, and only his costs. He is is not relevant right. because he, the Jew that could be helped. He had dreams of making a good profit on that, uh, on that right, look, look, operation. That's why he got them, right? Of course. He, he didn't get it. He was getting later if he understood what she was telling him. Which, which is unbelievable. I mean, today parents would hesitate to ever do that to a child, frankly. Even the older children, you don't want to you don't want to sabotage their their operation, even if it is for Chesed. It, it, the whole oh, thing. Oh, you know, one day, Nachum, if you could invite me on your show, we could talk about today's parents altogether. Nothing to do with books. One day when there's no new books out and it's quiet, yeah. we could do that. But there I love are, that. But, 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 but that having been said, uh, this book might then be worth purchasing if, if only for to see how his parents you know, dealt with life-saving situations and with... Oh, I love with, what you're saying. That's not, you know, everybody looks at the angle and they think it's an obvious thing. So they're going to see the, the integrity. Right. You know, we're, we're living in an era now when there's Baruch Hashem unprecedented wealth right. in, the, in the Jewish community. May it continue and flourish. A yeah, lot but, of people are making money, and they don't know what to do with it. There's no guidebook. There's no handbook. There's no and manual. It makes, and, makes in, and, it makes in, and it makes integrity very difficult. Yeah, and no one's really teaching it to you. That means even if you learn halacha and musa, right. and you know that there's, in theory, you go to the workplace, and there's all kinds of challenges, and you read this book about this man who was so rock-solid in his convictions, and... Not only did they respect him, they revered him. I spoke to many people who wouldn't use off-color language in front of him, not Jewish people. A woman told me that they would instinctively cover, cover themselves up if they weren't dressed appropriately right. when he walked into a room. Not because of anything he said. You could be sure he didn't say anything. But he created such a force of persona that was, like you're saying, dignified and, and noble and honest and real. 
that everybody revered him. And you saw when he passed away, the accolades coming from the secular yeah. press and heads of government. Uh, government. He was he Canada proud. He was, um, uh, the reaction you just described is the reaction that many non from and non-Jewish people will give to a Rosh Hashiva. They understand the, the way the person looks, presents themselves. I have to look a certain way. I have to speak a certain way in their presence, etc. He... He not only, and I have to be careful how I say this, but I think you'll agree based on what you wrote, he not only got that type of respect from the people we just described, he got that type of respect from Rosh Yeshiva as well. I think it's safe to say that you actually point that out, right? I wrote that Rosh Yeshiva were were blown away by the fact that a wealthy, he was a tall man, he was six feet tall. I mean, I don't know what the Siegel family considers tall, but to me that's tall. And he he would bend deferentially. And any time he was in the presence of any kind of Talmud Chacham, his, his posture switched. Instead of being that tall, erect bearing, he would be stooped towards them, always looking towards them. And he really saw himself. He saw his money. He really believed in the, in the mission that the Rebbe gives people money. Things that people talk about, he really believed, and that right. the money wasn't his. And he, he was just there to disperse it, and they were the ones to tell him where to give it and how to give it. And that is why you know people might think he was removed, he was snobbish, he was you know because of the the well. It was exactly the opposite. He he never felt that this money was his. He never felt that that he had a right to live a certain way because there was this amount of money in the bank. He just felt that that this was given to him by the one above, and now he has to... And by the way, coming from what we described about his parents, it, I mean, it fits right into the mold here, of course. Right, of course, sure. His, his son told me that I didn't write it in the book. I didn't, I didn't think it was it belonged there, but it's just an, it's an interesting fact, you know, vis-a-vis what you just said, that he his son had just gone to work. It was about three or four months after he joined the business. And on a Friday, he got a call from his father's broker in, in New York. And he says he needs to speak to Mr. Eichmann. He said he's not reachable. His father was in England for Shabbos, and was already Shabbos had already come in over right. there. So obviously he couldn't reach him. Right. So he says, I have a decision that he needs to make now about either selling the stock or holding. was worth, he said, tens of millions of dollars. So he said, I can't reach my father. He says, okay, so you need to make a decision. And he explained to him, you know, the two sides of the equation, whether to hold or sell. And right. the son said he didn't know much about business. He couldn't ask his father. So he made the decision on his own. And after Shabbos, he told his father what happened. So his father said, okay, tell me the calculation you made. And his father smiled and he appreciated it. So the son tells him, my father never told me if I won or lost, because that wasn't relevant. He wanted to know how I got there, that it was a sound calculation I made. And then he was okay, because the money was so not the goal. He enjoyed business immensely. He enjoyed the opportunity that business gave him to help others immensely. But the money itself was never the goal. So he said, it didn't make a difference if I won or lost. As long as my father approved of the way I thought. He, he liked my approach to the problem, then we were okay. He, it never was relevant. He never got back to me. He said, was he right or wrong? It didn't make a difference. Unbelievable, I'll tell you. Uh, the book is called Building for Eternity, The Life and Legacy of Ramosha Reichman. Yisrael Besser, the author, is with us live via telephone, artscroll.com. Always use promo code radio when ordering this book or anything else for your discount and for your free shipping. By the way, I am I am literally a mile away, and a lot of people in the younger generation, a lot of people in every generation don't realize this. I'm a mile away right now from the World Financial Center. That's a Reichman project, right? That's something that they took great pride in, I'm sure. Tremendous pride. It was, it was at that time when he walked into Manhattan. He was an unknown Canadian. And almost immediately, the, the same words, uh, you know, uh, first-class developer, elegance, the words that became associated with every one of their properties. And Battery Park City was, was a landfill right. that had years of mismanagement and neglect and bureaucracy. It just sat there. And he, you probably remember that. Sure. And he came in with this vision, and right away they were swept away by his ideas of what he could do with the property. 
and and you know they loved it. And famously, Ed Koch said at the groundbreaking right. that the Reichmans. He spoke about it was this was like a, a high moment when Ed Koch said that the Reichmans didn't want to work on Shabbos. They wouldn't allow their crews to work on Shabbos. They right. wouldn't allow plumbers, electricians, alarms. Right. Nobody. <laughs> no, no part of all of the, you know not just the office was closed. Every single component. Of of, the, of of construction was closed down on Shabbos, and Koch spoke about it and said, and somehow they always come in on budget and on time. Yep. So that was really the height of Kiddush Hashem to hear, to hear him say that, where it, not only the Shabbos didn't cost them, they somehow managed to, to respect the schedule. And, and having known Koch, I'm sure under his breath he was saying, are they crazy? <laughs> like, <I'm telling> <laughs> oh, Koch was very frustrated from them. I wrote this in the book. Uh, you know, uh, A. Biederman told me that he was housing commissioner. At the right, time, right. And Koch was infuriated by the fact that the Reichman said no and, you know, every other developer in the city was just trying to get a moment of his time and ingratiate themselves right. with him. And the Reichmans had no interest in meeting him. It wasn't relevant. <sighs> they weren't there to do selfies. There's no self. Marshall Reichman met every head of state, right? <laughs> We're living in an era where if you're in the White House and you have a, you see an usher, you're taking a selfie with him. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're busy taking with some undersecretary to the undersecretary of, of uh, agriculture. You're doing a selfie. And Marshall Reichman met head of state. And there's no picture of him that's posed. Any picture of him with Mulroney or Bush, Reagan, or Thatcher is in conversation that somebody else talks. The only thing he ever posed with, frankly, were models of his buildings. That's like the only thing models he ever saw. Because that was for promotional material. Right. Again, that was the exactly. goal. He, he, was, that was, he was doing business. Unbelievable, I'll tell you. He was very focused on that. And, you know, again, for those of us who lived through this era, uh, one of the things that always fascinated us was the, uh, and, you know, you'll excuse me for saying it this way, but, you know, people pay attention to the failures. We know about the failures that they had in business, and of course, you know we 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 were all um, uh, we were all uh, um, uh, listening to the news of the you know financial demise and the and the collapse of the Reichman Empire, etc. And again, just like I said regarding the end of World War II, I did not realize until Yisrael Besser told me in this book, I did not realize that the next morning they're dusting themselves off, and he. Again, maybe not with the same amount of money that he was worth the day before, whatever the calculation was, but he's, you know, accepting people who need checks for chesed organizations. You know, it's funny. In 2008, I remember people saying this, that the the first thing to go is going to beat Stucca. You know, it's going to be the first thing to go. You know, if you think you're going to collect money, it'll be the first thing. Just the opposite. He faces his own financial challenge, a ma- massive one, as you can imagine, and you describe it. And, and and the next day, you know, he's not turning anybody away. Maybe the checks were a drop smaller, but he's not turning anybody away. Incredible, both in terms of the stock and the business itself. That means he was a man in his 60s who experienced, like you said, a colossal financial failure right. that was in every newspaper in the world, in every home. And he dusting himself off even even in regard to business, to the rebuilding, which he did. Like, again, not with the same magnitude, right. scope, and success, of course. But he, but he, he rebuilt a lot of it. Then he, he ended up back in Canary Wharf to be able to do that. To, to like you think, dust yourself off. Right. It's really, it's not only stamina and courage. It's also tremendous amuna. It's faith. He believed completely. You know, people would speculate all the time that Thatcher had had blown Canary Wharf for him because she right. promised the underground, right. and the, the rail line wasn't ready in time, and that of course was catastrophic. Right. And he, he would never allow people to say that, and he would never even give 
credence to the theory because he says there's a Rebbe Nishon, there's a master, and it wasn't meant to be. He didn't let himself go there. If if I could have he, he wanted self help books and the stuff that we tell ourselves today about how to feel good, he 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 just had enough emunah to say when I got very wealthy, I didn't think it was because I was so smart. I believed in his blessings, so when I lost that wealth, it's also him. So Shar Habitachan was enough of a self help book for him. <laughs> he, like we wrote there, there's a, there a, a safer. I learned it a lot when I was writing the book, Chazanish Amunavitachan. I couldn't right. understand a line of it. The, the Hebrew is so sophisticated, it's lyrical, but I needed help with, with every line of it. He, this was a safer that he traveled with everywhere he went. So much so, this was an emotional thing. His children told me that after a person passes away, there's very often items or objects that the children associate with them a menorah, a right. theta plate, right. or a kiddush cup. Right. They said there was nothing of their father's that meant anything to them emotionally, that they connected with him, other than that one safer. His copy of Chaznash, and when we talk about that, they saw him in. That was his essence. And he lived with that safer until the end of his life. Unbelievable. The amuna that runs through the story is tremendous. Unbelievable. And, and that's what it's all about. It's all about having faith and knowing that the one above is controlling everything, which is, uh, by the way, yet another reason. <laughs> I love finding the angles why people should buy your books, Israel. <laughs> yet another reason. that you, know, you, have ri- you have written books before that I have described on the air as a Musser safer. There's a lot of Musser in here. There's a lot of Musser in here about just believing in the one above and let him being your guide, and that's it. I would like to think that, I know you remember, sir, but it's a book that uplifts a person rather right. than, you know, it doesn't tell them how weak he is, it tells them how great he is. Yeah, no question about it. By the way, Reichman embodied the, the perfection of man, the heights that man could reach, not in the best matters. Like I said, most Gedolim books, uh, Gedolim, Rashishivas, rabbis, Rabbanim, teachers, here's somebody who, for 40 years of his life, he took a detour. He started in the classroom, right. but he left for about 40 years. You know, we haven't... He never lost it. Now, I was going to say, we haven't spent enough time on this. You're right, that, that his, entire, his entire being was based on Torah. His early years were such important years for, for the way he ended up becoming. Right. He, and he would always talk about those as his best years, those years yeah. after his wedding, living alone, just him and his wife in Tangier, right. teaching, raising money for a school, worrying about uh, if there's going to be electricity the next morning, administrator. Any, anybody in his uh, generation still around from the family or not? His, his brothers are around. I, I spent expensive time with one of them who was wow. in a better position to talk, his brother Ralph. It's listen Toronto. He was a tremendous help to me. Unbelievable. And, uh, and I assume and that, that they are still active in the world of chesed, stucca, real estate, etc. I would assume that he left a legacy, not of bankruptcy, but a legacy of, of activity. For sure, business and innovation, and like you're saying, in Chesed. And he, someone told me recently that their mother passed, their father passed away in the early 80s, right. and they didn't know much for Akhmer. They went to him for money, a new almana. So he said he's going to put $250,000 on account, but they should match the Askanim kind of should match it. Right. This was before anybody talked that way about matching. <laughs> right. That's when there's no charity coming. <laughs> he said he's going to give 250 personally, and they should raise 250 And when they were 250 he'll give his 250 So that inspired them. 250 was a goal they thought they could reach. Right. He told me this first time that his mother still lives from that Karen. I mean, she lives on the interest of that. It generates interest. She lives alone. She's said till today she's living from Rosh Hashanah's idea. And there's so that I would say thousands of people like that across this world who are still living in some way right. from an investment he made for them. You know, he was the first one to encourage couples to move out and out of Yerushalayim and Bnei Brak. He saw it wasn't sustainable. So he would he would lend money to anybody who bought an apartment in any of the peripheral cities of Israel, and he would usually waive that loan just to get them on their feet. So the, the, it, it's unimaginable, uh, the scope of what's going on today in the world, just as a result of this man and his vision. 
Unbelievable. The whole thing is just incredible. Uh, the we book- wrote a check for a million dollars before Moshe Rachman came along. He was the first to make that because the wealth was already there at the, uh, in those years, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s. Meaning in our general the, community. The, in the general, in the wider Jewish community. But right. people weren't accustomed to writing checks like that. So you can get away with a lot less. Why write bigger? And he thought differently. He, you know, Rabbi Shalom told this to me that many people, the, the mortgage, you take a mortgage on a building. So what's the value of a building? It has its inherent value, and then it has how much it's worth, then how much you say it's worth. It's very hard to to figure out the precise amount. He said he started to give stucker against the projected worth of the building. So if you bought a building for a million dollars and thought he could sell it for 1.5, his stucker changed according to how much he imagined it. He said he was the first person to borrow money for stucker. He said, if I'm borrowing money against my buildings to buy other buildings, why can't I borrow money against my buildings to give stucker? So he was just fueling the stucker enterprise with his building and building and building to give more. Unbelievable. And so many... Philanthropists, as you just said, is small and large, are 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 living a chesed life off of those lessons, off of what he taught us. There's a generation of people today who consider themselves, and he considered them, Tommy, to be always. If people would call him younger businessmen, called him up for business advice, many of them just wanted to be. He had this aura; they wanted to be exposed to him. He always made time for them, and he explained to somebody not because he thought his advice was so wise and that it was necessary, but he wanted to connect with the next generation of donors many of whom are household names in the world of MISIS today, because he wanted to empower them and and remind them of their responsibilities. So they became, he had like this informal network of next generation donors, all of whom were were inspired by him. You know, and and by the way, when you mentioned the million dollar checks and you talk about the the help for widows and orphans, which of course has to be our massive priority when it comes to Tetzstaka. Um, uh, these are yeshivas, organizations, places in Israel, places outside of Toronto, and I say it that way because he was obviously based in Toronto, but took a great interest in in uh, Torah institutions that were outside of his own city. Uh, in addition to, I can only imagine what they did in Toronto itself. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and 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 when you say million dollar checks, that was again, you know, somebody who led the way in showing others that you can support a day school with a check like that and you can uh, uh you know encourage others to to match and give amounts that are you know in that range and that's uh, and we today we don't think of it that way but in those days it was revolutionary this wasn't done mm-hmm. wasn't done on a regular basis mm-hmm. uh the, the book is called building for eternity if you are like me and the name Reichman was one that, uh, you know, there, there are certain names today, Israel Besser, which we're not going to say on the air, but there are certain names today that are always bandied about when people talk about, you know, try to raise money for good causes. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, so everybody out there, if you're from that generation where those names are being used, imagine in our generation, the name Reichman was the what was the go-to when it came to. Uh, it you came know, one of the kids told me I didn't write this in the book, but they were saying how, with his humility, he knew who he was. He understood how people viewed him to a degree. Anyhow, so she said they were once in Florida in the lobby of the hotel, they were going somewhere, and there was this older couple. It's their 50th anniversary, and the husband was surprising the wife. Not not a nobody they knew. They just overheard right. this older couple, and the husband surprised his wife with a limo. They picked him up to take them out to dinner for their right. anniversary. Right. So the wife screams out in the hotel lobby, oh, boy, who do you think you are, Paul Reichman? <laughs> so the daughter told me that her father just smiled. Like, he, he, heard, he heard, you know, he heard the comments, and he, like, he smiled, he got it, and he moved on. He, be, he, he was not just a person, he was a, uh, what do we Yeah, call- but he understood. 
understood. Like, he yeah. didn't say, what is, well, why'd you say that? He got it. No, but I'm saying that the, the, the name Reichman became like a noun. Like, that was the... Exactly. Or an adjective. An adjective for wealth in the Jewish world. It was always Reichman. Anyway, uh, go to artscroll.com. The book is called Building for Eternity. Yisrael Besser is the author. It's the life and legacy of Ramosha Reichman. And for all the reasons I just mentioned in this conversation, uh, you should make sure to read this. It's a very, very important book. Uh, for those who care about Torah, Chesed, business, Jewish history, it's all there in this book. And I congratulate you on that, Yisrael Besser. I have to take a minute, and I'm sure it'll be a lot more than a minute, uh, to mention that Yisrael Besser has another new book out. And especially for those of you who saw the Nishmas book uh, and others that he has uh, done in this format, uh, th- this is just incredible. It's Arise and Sing. It is the power of the first prayers of the day through commentary, stories, and inspiration. It takes you from Moda'ani through Birchas HaShachar. It takes you from Moda'ani uh, until the morning blessings that uh, that we say, the list of morning blessings. And um, I- I'll tell you what, um, I don't remember who I said this to. Maybe I said it to myself, frankly, Israel, when I when I first saw the book. For me, this is an amazing book, and I'll tell you why. I love Love. I, I, I'm a. I'm. I'm pretty well known as a shul, uh, you know, davening guy. You know, I. 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 I'm, I, I pride myself out, outside of what on this show, trying trying to be in shul as much as possible. I love love the the parts of davening that feel the most personal between me and the one above. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's mm-hmm. wh- that's why I have, and I've done this in my public tefillah lecture that I give. Uh, that's why I have a special affinity toward the second half of Ashrei, because I do. I believe if you read the words carefully and internalize it, it's literally a as much as it's a public prayer and one that is asking for things on behalf of and praising God for what He does for the general community. I believe there's a very very personal angle to it. Uh, I think some people uh, appreciate Birchas Achodesh a lot because they feel that that is a personal plea to God to make the upcoming days you know, as strong and as uh, full of uh, Yerushalayim as possible. And this, the Moda'ani through Birchaz HaShachar, for me, might be the highlight of daily davening because of that feeling of the personal aspect that it is between me and God. I have to imagine that that's one of the reasons that this is uh, already making its mark uh, it, as a brand new book in the Jewish world, I, I would hope so. There's definitely, you know, I, I'm impressed and somewhat jealous of you that you were able to connect with it. But a lot of people felt that these prayers get shortchanged because what happens is in many homes you're, you're writing, you're doing carpool, you got to get to the office, you got to the brachas, end up being something you're mumbling while you're driving mm. or while you're going to the car. And by the time you get to shul already, they're up to shamar ashray, so you quickly have to put in filling, and they were getting a raw deal. And we spoke about this when I put out Nishmas last right. year, how in COVID, those three, four, five months, however long people were home for, depending where they live, people fell in love with davening. They discovered that, no, it's not that davening is a stress. Davening is a joy, except we never have time to enjoy it. We never savor it. So it's like when you put somebody in a good restaurant and you say, okay, order seven courses, but you have 15 minutes to do so. <laughs> of, course they're not, of course they won't enjoy the food. It's just pressure to them. So a little bit we did the same thing, especially to chakras, which is longer. And it's at a time of day when, uh, I don't have to tell it to you, you're the one who invented working in the morning. I don't know anybody who starts working earlier than you now. So, you know, people would feel it. And then they were home, and there was no, suddenly everything stopped. 
suddenly they're like, okay, we, li- we like this. What does it mean? Why am I saying Sha'asali uh, Kaltaki and not like every other bracha? What Sha'asali? Why does it suddenly get super personal like you just indicated? You know, it goes, I used to uber personal and Sha'asali Kaltaki. Why there? I right? You ever think about that? A hundred percent. Can I tell you the answer? Yes, because I love it. Please do. I have to tell you such a good thing. Shasa Lee Kaltaki, right? So it's a little bit of an anomaly. He does for me all my needs. Right. The format of all the other brachas is the one who provides needs, right? He says such a beautiful part from Meishalayim Sasava. He says that if you you see a friend and uh, use a Montreal example, his car broke down, the battery died, and he needs a boost on a cold day. You can't say, it's from Hashem, Hashem takes care, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Or if somebody needs a loan, you can't say, God takes care. For yourself, you have to say that, but for somebody else, you better help them. So Sha'asa Lee called Turkey. This that the Ebishtah takes care of needs, that's for me. When I'm in need, I have to remind myself, this happened to me, I needed that to happen, and it's for my good. But when your friend's in trouble, that's not the time for your bitachan hat. That's the time for helping somebody else out. That's the time to throw yourself into it. So make sure that you're understanding that the Ben provides our needs for yourself and only for yourself. No wonder you said to me off the air these two books have a, uh, have a common thread. <laughs> because no, because uh, ches, ches, chesed and bitachan are the two themes. Exactly, exactly. I, I felt very much there was overlap in, in, in a lot of the themes. And, and even the, uh, the sense that there's always a mission, that a Jew lives his life, there's always marching orders, so you're never off. Right. So Moshe Rachman took that to, to banks and boardrooms, that you also have a mission. And these brachas remind you that every step you take and every, everything you look at in the course of the day and everything is essentially part of God's chesed with you and has to be elevated. Right. If we're going to be a Torah true Jews, then 100% of everything we do has to be uh, uh, influenced, at the minimum influence, if not completely guided and commanded. Influence, and sometimes the influence just means recognizing right. that he's allowing you to, to, to see this beautiful painting right. or, or enjoy a walk, whatever, yeah. whatever it means. But there's an active connection that's always going on. And the brachas, the whole from Odaani. Straight through, remind you. Oh, I, I love your analysis of the different sections of Modani and, and why it is that these are the words we first say in the morning. It's so remarkable. But I have to, and look, we're, we're limited on time, and obviously, as I always say, maybe one day you'll come in here and we'll do a two, three-hour conversation, which would be amazing. Uh, oh, by the I way, you're, you're in Canada. Are you out of lockdown yet or not? Are you still? Uh... <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's <laughs> a great joke to have, start have, off have, today, have things, and I appreciate it have, on behalf of your listeners. Have things opened up yet or not? I don't know how things are well, going. Well, no doubt, <laughs> approach the new day with laughter in their hearts. <laughs> well, if they're, south, if they're south of the border, they'll be laughing. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> they actually opened up your border yesterday. The U.S. opened its borders yesterday. So yesterday? So immigration from Canada yesterday to let people in. Seriously? Yeah, for real. So the opposite must have happened months ago, meaning us visiting you must have happened months ago, then I would guess. Canada opened up a long time ago. The United States only opened their border yesterday. Wow. I didn't, and, and that included Canadians? So most of the people in the Jewish community here, many, many, I would say 80% of the people here are American citizens anyhow. Right, so they point. were never precluded. And there was a loophole right. that you could always fly in. Right. So when Jews had a, a simcha or the opposite, right. they always found a way. But to, to the wider community in Montreal yesterday, the, the lineup at the border yesterday was about six or seven hours of people wow. who just needed to get out. Unbelievable. Are your minyan, I'm, and now I'm not joking, are your minyanim taking place in regular shuls, regular system, back everything? Yeah. Now, you know what? We had a very intense lockdown and curfew, but I have to say that to a degree, it, it, it worked in the sense that, that we respected it, and then we reopened beautifully. We, we, people don't realize that we reopened fairly quickly. 
the minute we respected the, the law, of course, and worked with them. And uh, being by the middle of last winter, we were open already again. And that included schools and, and things like that? It did. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. See see what happens when you're hundreds of miles away. What can I tell you? Can't believe you can't believe the media, you know that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that, but I you know, obviously we don't have enough time to go through everything here, but we gotta talk about the one paragraph that is just I mean, if one in my opinion, if there's a centerpiece to Hashkama Saboker, if there's a centerpiece of Modani through the old Birchos Hashachar, it's the line Elokai Nishamash Nosatabitahorahi. And that whole paragraph, we are we are expressing such gratitude and such recognition. How must how must God feel Kaviyachol when he hears someone say these words every morning? It must make him feel great. Again, I say Kaviyachol, but you get my point. It must be an amazing right. feeling for him to hear his children say this and say it this way. Sure, the joy of the you know the some the whole parakshira really is an expression right? right of of the creation coming alive every morning and and Chazal is replete We're talking about Hashem's joy in that how much pleasure he derives derives from that shira right. of creation like you say the centerpiece of man and the centerpiece of man is the neshama shenasatavi which remains always the hierarchy and that's it and 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 of course subsequent to that and I encourage people <clears> to look at it all the words in that paragraph are so meaningful and so incredible. I, did, I didn't realize again until I got into this project. Rekeach, you read the Shainim, the precision of the words that were chosen right. by the How many, down to how many words appear right. in each thing, and there are differentiations between Sfar and Ashkenaz at times, and even that has significance. What they're arguing about. Right. It was very, very instructive to me. I, I didn't know most of the things. Oh, I'll tell you. And and, and by right, and and we need to recognize that because sometimes people get frustrated that we analyze words of Torah giants of a certain era, the same way Lahavdil, and I think it's proper to say it that way, I'm saying it in a positive way, Lahavdil, we analyze words of the Torah itself, which of, which of course is a completely legitimate practice. And I think that on a positive way, there is a legitimacy to it, to the why they use this word and the accuracy of, of, of what they use. And, and as you said, you know, making sure the expression comes out the right way. And it's really important. I think it enhances our bitachon, frankly, when we see just how careful they were about the words and phrases of that they've chosen. The, the power and the, and the potency yeah. that lies in every word of Adainaylam and of Mataivu, every right. single one of the Zachas is, and you know, of Schwab, really based a lot on Rav Hirsch, were one of the first <coughs> who opened it up. And you read the writings of these people, of that school of thought, the, the Hirschians all the way down to Vern of Schwab, and you, you understand what it means, precision in words, the way they analyze every single word, every letter that's used to connect. I'm just thinking about it as you're saying it, but you're right. The precision is such an important part of it. By the way... I, I think it's not coincidental that in those communities, they, they actually daven. I mean, <laughs> you walk into Breuer's, nobody's moving, no one's jangling keys, no one's checking their cell phone to see the Yankees' course. It's the decorum is tremendous. So we can make jokes about it, or you could realize that these were people who were instructed in Tila early on. So of course they take it seriously. Wow. I, that's a statement that I'm going to be analyzing with my kids at the Shabbos table this week. I can tell you that much. You throw a you, you just made I didn't it. Say it's the most fun place to dive in, in, the, in the whole world. The, no, but the fact that you're saying. the richness of the Tila experience and the seriousness of the Tila experience. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it, but it's an incredible generalization, which I think, unfortunately, you're accurate about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think you're right, uh, but it doesn't. As generalizations it, go, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't mean that it's not worthy of conversation. Let me tell you. But what was For the sure. what was the first thing that Nahum Siegel did when he got this book? And you'll appreciate this. 
<laughs> the, Tell fir- me. the first thing I did, I, for some reason, became one of those people. I don't remember what it was. It may have been a high school thing. It may have been just after that. I became one of those people who says Alakai Neshama after Asha Yatzer. Because of really? the because of the, yeah. the smichas habrachas, you know that whole issue mm-hmm. with with um, mm-hmm. I forgot already the concept. What's it called? The um, uh, uh, you know what I'm with, talking with about. Hashem's name, with right. the same Malchus, yeah. Correct. And 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 and, and I of course look to see uh, where you put Elokai Neshama. Although frankly, mm-hmm. although frankly, I was um, I was uh, I, I think I knew the answer before I uh, actually opened up the book. Because you sometimes just you say Elokim Shama before Birchas Atayra. Correct, right after Ashiyatza. Oh, I got it. Right after Ashiyatza, I got it. Which okay. which other people do? I don't want you to think I invented. I think Nusachashkenaz. I don't, but I think Nusachashkenaz does well, that n- wholesale. Well, not no? in the traditional Nusachashkenaz sitter, uh, but there are people in the Ashkenazi community who do it for the reason I said about that there should be that you shouldn't start right. a final bracha that doesn't have an opening bracha. I, I can't remember the concept right, right now. But anyway, mm. how did I know the answer before I opened the book? Because mm-hmm. who, who of course, was so close, uh, and this is certainly a topic you could address today because it's probably uh, it's probably completely uh, dominating your life right now. Who was the person that the Zlatowitz family would turn to for questions about anything, including tefillah? And of course, the an- and the answer, of course, is the great Rav David Feinstein of blessed memory, who we miss mm-hmm. every every community misses him. But you can imagine how much this community misses him on a daily basis. Said, sure. So sure. one time, one time, a friend of mine who was very close with Rav David Feinstein uh, and I were discussing this, and I said, you know, I do this, and, and, and there is a rabbinic precedent for it that you know I say the bracha after Mafli um, Lasos, after you know Ashayotzer. Then I say Lokaina Shama, and this person said to me, I'm going to ask Rav David Feinstein, and Rabbi Feinstein, in his, and I'm sure you're getting a lot of this as you do your research. In his incredible style, said the following. He said, "You know, every he says I totally get it. Meaning, you know, if if your friend is doing this, no problem. I I get why they're doing it. But I am going to continue to do what is written in our sitter. If our sidur tells us that this is the order it's supposed to be in, meaning Elokeinu Shama is right before Birchas Hashachar. If that's what the sitter says, and this has been our tradition for all these years, then that is what I will continue to do." That's how I knew the answer before I opened it up. I always think of him. Whenever I do it, I think of him because he had an appreciation for why one might uh, do otherwise. Oh, maybe you want to include this in your book, by the way. You may want to, you may want to include this. Oh, for sure. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but his... Okay, well, on our way. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I made your, your Tuesday much easier now. <laughs> I could tell you that when that book comes out, it will definitely include the Rabbi David Feinstein Nachum Siegel relationship. I appreciate that. But he, um, but but that was his thing. That you know, this is our Masora, this is our tradition, and the sitter that was arranged by people before this generation. This is the way they said it should be said. So I thought that you know, mm-hmm. I'd share that tidbit with you. And uh, I appreciate it very much. It yeah. definitely fits, and it definitely fits his personality, right? Like this, you know, for sure. This is what we're told to do, and that's it. And the, that that a staggering guyness fused with the persona of a simple yid just yeah. doing his thing, sitting, you know, with a sitter. Have you broken the news to the uh, to the people at Archville that's going to be an eight hundred page book, or, or are you not you're not up to that stage yet? 
I mean, you know, it, it must be very hard for you on a typical Tuesday deciding which of today's stories are going in and which of today's stories are going in. A little bit of a novel position to books or approach yeah. to books. Maybe you noticed it in the, in the book, in the back of the book, which you're holding. Yeah. I, I don't believe a longer book is better. I believe a shorter book takes much more work. It's just like a shorter speech. Right. Takes, you know, people say that it takes five minutes to prepare an hour speech and an hour to prepare a five-minute speech. That's correct. Because when you're really, really weighing every word and you want every story to have maximum effect, then you don't, you don't want to dray a cup. You don't want to belabor the point. So I, I think that to myself that, that sometimes consumers say, oh, how many pages is it? Oh, wow, I'm getting my money's worth. But I think sophisticated and savvy consumers understand that a shorter book sometimes is going to be a much more explosive force in your life because every word is accounted for. So I, I, I'm always trying to write shorter rather than longer and keep the book shorter. I, I, frankly, the attention span of people isn't what it was even when I started 10 years ago. There's so many things competing for your distraction, especially on a weekday, for, you know, pulling out your brain. But I also like the experience of I, I want people to get lost in a read. I don't want them to read uh, two minutes before bedtime. Right. I want them to pick up the book when they have some time on a Sunday or on a Shabbos or whenever it is and just get into it. And I, I realize that by writing long, I lose people. Um, especially with David Feinstein, who, to whom brevity was the, the goal of goals. He rarely spoke in public, and if he did, it would be a minute or two. Right. And he cho- he didn't use words he didn't have to use. I, I would want to pay tribute to that uh, through brevity. So the 800-page work doesn't speak to me. I am not a Talmud of his, as you know. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, by accident, if there is such a thing as an accident in this world, I, by accident, became his neighbor 30-plus years mm-hmm. ago. And... Um, even though we did not have that personal relationship that so many of his Talmudim and others and certainly his relatives had with him, nonetheless, I could tell you that he affixed the mezuzah on this studio door where I sit today, which uh, is something I always really? think about. Yeah, he, oh, that's so nice. I hope you have pictures of that. I, I do have it. I have pictures of it somewhere. That I do. I hope I'll find them, frankly. And, um, oh, well. And that's very meaningful to me because, again, you know, somebody who's, you know, was – certainly not in the inner circle, so to speak, but made this request that he climb the steps here and, and affix the mezuzah when this studio opened in 2003. I'm like, you know, I, I look back at it like, you know, what a special moment and what a tremendous privilege it is for all of us. That, of uh, that he... I learned something about him, which I didn't know. A close friend of his told me, I didn't know this, that when Ramesha took over Teferit Yushalayim, it was not only a school, but a shul. It was more of a shul than a school. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So Ramesha always saw himself as a rav of the community. So even though eventually it only became an institution, a school, and it didn't remain a shul, David saw himself as inheriting his father's rabbonus, so to speak. So he saw himself as of a shtetl called the East Side, and it was very much a shtetl-type rabbonus. I don't have to tell you. That means uh, people on the East Side are telling me things like that. Someone told me last week he got engaged. His father called up David to say, oh, where do I buy the ring? Where do I? So he told him where to go on 47th Street. And when they went to the store, the, the, the dealer tells him, oh, David already called, I'll give you a discount. He said, if you had an ingrown toenail, you went to David to ask who should take care of it. He ran it like a shtetl from 100 years ago where you spoke to the rabbi about everything, as you know. Yeah. He, he wanted to be at the Simchus. He wanted to be involved with the people. The people of the East Side were his people. Those were his folks. And, and you hear that, those, those long, you know, Simchas, there was a time in his life, the last years he wasn't going to Simchas at all, except yeah, for family and Eastsiders. Yeah. The Eastsiders uh, were sort of... No, I was going to say, when we made our first wedding, he, he, it, it, it appeared that he was doing everything in his power, and it was not a short ride from here, it was a long ride from here. It appeared, he was doing everything in his power to be there. Unfortunately, again, as you indicated at the last minute, just practically speaking, health-wise, etc., it didn't work out, but just the fact that he expressed such interest in making sure that, if possible, he's going to be there. I mean, 
you know, to be able to say to the Masada Kedushin, you know, you're the Masada Kedushin. If Rav David does show up, though, he goes, of course. Are you kidding? Just to be able to say that, that that there's a possibility he'll walk in was amazing. Anyway, amazing. what can I tell you? Always a delight to speak Beautiful with you. People. We get to talk about such good people. Yeah, so nice. That's true. And learn a lot from them, to say the least. And the big yeshikoch to you, Yisrael Besser, for all of that. Thank uh, you, Nachum. So nice. Can't thank you enough. Looking, looking forward to uh, to seeing you in person one of these days. Always a pleasure. Yisrael Besser, everybody. The book is called Building for Eternity, The Life and Legacy of Ramosha Reichman. The other book that we are highly recommending today is called Arise and Sing, The Power of the First Prayers of the Day Through Commentary, Stories, and Inspiration. If you're someone like me who feels that it is those prayers that are the most personal between you and God every single day, uh, you will absolutely love this book. Just love it. Um, and we're highly recommending both. Go to artscroll.com, use promo code radio. When you use promo code radio, you know what happens. You get a nice discount, plus you get free shipping. Go to artscroll.com. Follow the rule of using promo code radio. My thanks to Yisrael Besser, and thank you all for listening on a Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. <laughs>